Hello, and welcome to Deprogram with Carrie Smith. I'm excited to have you here. If you are new to the channel, this is a new channel, the Deprogram channel. So please hit subscribe if it's your first time here. Um, I'm very excited about today's guest. I am going to be talking with Jack Buckby, who's someone I met on Twitter. We've had a few conversations online, but never talked on video before. And we're going to be having a conversation about his experiences in the extremist right, my experiences in the extremist left, and what similarities and differences there might be there. Um, Jack Buckby is a British counter-extremism researcher, researcher and author based in New York. He writes about reciprocal radicalization and ways in which Western societies can prevent young people from engaging with all kinds of extremism. Thank you for being here today, Jack. Thanks so much for having me on, Carrie. I've been looking forward to it. Me too. I was telling you beforehand, I really like your chair, but I also didn't compliment. I love the rest of your, your house too, what I can see of it. Yeah, this is my office. It's uh, entirely green with gold frames. My wife did all of it. You know, I've got gold frames everywhere and We've even got an old vintage TV with an iPad stuck in it and everything. It's wicked. Oh, I love that. I, I think your wife and I would get along great. We just bought a, so. um, we just got an old vintage radio, like one of the tall ones. Mm -hmm. It has all the tubes and stuff in the back. And we were going to turn it into a pedestal sink, but it's a little too tall. So I think we're going to do what your wife did. We're just going to make it, we're going to convert it to use it for something that it was made for. We're going to make it into a Bluetooth speaker. That's wicked. I love that. Yeah. That's cool. So I'm so excited to speak with you because I think this might be the kind of it, it, probably a conversation that I haven't had before. I've talked a lot the past few years about my experiences leaving the woke left. And I do view that as an extremist ideology. Right. Um, but I haven't talked to someone who's left an extremist part of the right. So can you just tell our audience a little bit about like who you are and what your background is? Like, where would you like to start? So uh, maybe I should start by saying that it's very common when people leave the quote unquote far right. And there's, well, let's talk about the, the definitions of that and so on later on. There's a lot of people who leave the far right who become radical leftists. That seems to be the default position. It seems to be the strategy that the British government has uh, adopted. It seems to be the strategy that the SPLC and all these kind of people have adopted. If you are to leave the far right, you become a radical leftist. That's the standard. I don't consider myself a leftist. Um, I'm for the most part a conservative, I would say. It's been a long journey for me. Um, I got involved in white nationalist politics at the age of 15. I was born in a working class town in northern England, a former mining town that was didn't do great in 2008 during the crash. You know, uh, people were losing their jobs. We had a, an immigration problem in the UK where simply so, so many people were coming in and it was mostly impacting the working class towns and the, the politicians didn't really want to talk about it. And so a lot of people um, were left in these working towns feeling completely abandoned by the politicians. And when they dared speak about it, they were slammed as, uh, uh, smeared as a racist and, and so on, the kind of dynamic that we're seeing today as well. Um, and what that led to was in the UK, a, a political party called the British National Party, which was an offshoot of the National Front, which in itself was effectively a neo-Nazi white separatist organization that advocated for all non-white people to be kicked out of the UK. Um, we had this offshoot, the BNP, that was a political party. It got a million votes in 2009, it got two members of the European Union, uh, excuse me, members of the European Parliament elected in 2009. It became a mainstream political force. And me, 
at the age of 15, 16, saw that. And, you know, I, I, for whatever reason, I, I felt the need to get politically active while a lot of my friends didn't. And I ended up in a white nationalist party. And we can talk about that in depth. But let me say, it's surprisingly easy to do, um, especially when the circumstances allow for it to happen, when it feels like there's really no other option. You can find yourself turning a blind eye to a lot of things. Can Now, when you say you ended up in a, a white nationalist movement, did you, were you aware of that when you started getting into it, that this is explicitly white nationalist or was it sort of the slow boil thing? Because in my getting into social justice, I wasn't really aware what I was getting into. It was sort of a, it was presented as an extension of liberalism. This is uh, progressivism. This is about ending oppression. And, and it didn't occur to me until much later what I was actually involved in. Right. What was it like for you? Yeah, I think there was an element of turning a blind eye, but there was an element of not knowing everything too. And there's an idea that I, I talked about in, in a book that I wrote last year, Monster, Monster of Their Own Making, this idea of proving the far right right. Um, what I saw at the age of 15 was that there were so many people concerned about immigration and then so many politicians willing to ignore it. If I keep saying immigration, it sounds like the only thing I'm talking about is immigration. It's because that was the issue of the day. It probably should still be today, but that really was then. Um, and when a political party is advocating for, well, maybe we need sensible immigration controls and it was uh, changing its image. It was no longer calling itself like a white nationalist movement. It was a, a populist working class movement uh, and, and so on. They kind of modernized in a way that the National Front did in France, too. And, you know, you went from Marine Le Pen's father, who was explicitly a neo-Nazi, whereas Marine Le Pen is a populist conservative these days. There was that sort of movement within the party where it was mainstreaming itself. And me as a young person, I was willing to forgive a lot of things, actually, because for on a lot of policy areas, they were absolutely right. They wanted to bring the troops home when uh, this was like 2008. And they wanted to bring the troops home. They wanted a stronger immigration plan. They wanted a better welfare system for working class people who live in their jobs and so on. When the far right was proven right and when the, the media and the politicians refused to touch those things, you, you'll ignore some of the stuff. Yeah, I did know about the white nationalist past. I'm never going to lie about that. I did know about it, but I was willing to forgive it. That's really interesting what you're saying, because I've often thought about why people might be attracted to the extreme right. I think I know why they're attracted to the extreme left. I know why I was. And I think a lot of it is, is because it sells itself as something different than what it is. Yeah. Um, but for the extreme right, I just kind of assumed that part of it might be what you're talking about, which is if the mainstream won't address issues, if they're afraid of address addressing real issues that are in everyday, everybody's everyday life, like the, the impact of mass immigration or illegal immigration, if the only people talking about it are the extremists, Right. then that's going to attract people who might not otherwise be attracted there. Right. And what that, that makes it difficult when you get like moderate forces. Sorry, I'm just turning my phone off. That's annoying. Um, when you get moderate forces talking about immigration and so on, it's really a positive thing. Like you can look at Donald Trump as though he's some kind of aggressive 
maniac as people like to uh, act as though he is. But actually what I saw him as was a force for good in potentially de-radicalizing or stopping the continued radicalization of young people because he was willing to touch issues that were considered taboo uh, or, com or at least considered difficult to talk about. Uh, if you have a moderate force uh, talking about those things, it takes a lot of power away from people with uh, more extreme ideas who try and own those issues. Um, you know, the extreme right of white nationalists and so on shouldn't own opposing woke uh, cancel culture. They shouldn't own um, the immigration issue and so on, because what happens is they pull in people who are concerned about that stuff and then inject their own flavor of extremism on top of it. And what you find is that as time goes by, like what happened with me, you, when you're sort of surrounded by those additional elements of extremism, the anti-Semitism, the engagement in violence and so on, those things become normalized. And so when you enter something with the kind of uh, moderate ideas, but then you're engulfed and surrounded by these other stuff, it becomes normalized and you're willing to accept violence. You're willing to accept anti-Semitism and so on. Um, I argue as well that there's two kinds of extremist maybe there's more but from my perspective or what i've seen there's two one are joiners these are people that don't have a community they want to be a part of something and i think this happens on the left too uh for whatever reason people have many reasons to feel lonely they want to be part of a community and some often these radical groups are really a fantastic community for people it's everyone patting each other on the back you did great you should do this and and so on but then the other is a principled fanatic. And I would say I, that was me because I didn't so much need a community. I was responding to things that I saw with my own eyes. Mm -hmm. uh, immigration affecting jobs in my hometown, but also the um, majority Muslim rape gangs that um, we've seen throughout northern England and southern England, actually, um, that were, again, ignored by the politicians. And so if nobody talks about them, there's nowhere else to go. That's interesting. I, in my case, I also was what you're calling a principled fanatic. <laughs> and now you've got me questioning, are there people who join social justice because they see it like they see it as addressing something that's not being addressed. Right. And I think at least back when I joined 20 years ago, over 20 years ago, that was the case. You know, I worked in, I ended up, uh, after I graduated college, which is where I became the social justice person, um, I went into entertainment. And I definitely could see cultural, like, sexism and racism in the entertainment world. Right. And it, it, I'm not talking about legal barriers to people working in entertainment, but the sort of cultural racism that, right. that you witness and, and the old boys network of sexism in some ways. And so... I think I think maybe the same thing happened. I've never really thought about it that way, but I think I saw it as okay. This is addressing those wrongs instead of turning to liberalism, mm -hmm. which is what's really I think now corrected a lot of uh, prejudices and, and bigoted opinions. Instead of turning to liberalism, I went into this sort of extreme um, belief system, and I never really thought of it that way. You know, uh, it, it can be a, a, a real legitimate grievance or it can be a perceived grievance. Either way, whether the issue is real or not, it's something that, that motivates people to get involved. You know, you, you don't create an extremist out of thin air. It typically doesn't just happen. There has to be motivating factors. And I feel like that's something that um, a lot of counter extremism organizations and outfits don't seem to want to talk about. Um, and also, I think it's interesting you and I were having these sort of um, parallels here because... 
I've gone from being involved in the, the most famous white nationalist party in England, at least it was at the time, and going from that and settling, gradually moving, moving, moving. And I've now become this sort of moderate conservative. And mm. I feel like I, I imagine you've kind of had that same journey, but in the opposite way. And you've settled a, a sort of more moderate anti-woke liberal sort of stance. Yes, I would say. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I would say classical liberal, so more moderate. But you know what's interesting, something you said at the beginning, which is that for a lot of people like yourself who leave the extremist, racist, uh, far right, they end up going the other way and becoming far left extremists. Uh -huh. And I've actually, I wouldn't say I've seen the, the exact same thing. I don't know any former SJWs who've become alt-right or white nationalists, but I do know former SJWs. I do. Who, <laughs> Oh, you do? Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's, that's, I want to hear about that because I do know some who've, who've become passionately, I would say like Trump trained MAGA kind of people. Mm -hmm. No, no offense to any MAGA people. I ended up, as people know, if they watch the show, I ended up voting for Trump uh, this last election as well. It's just, it wasn't sort of coming out of, coming out of such a tribal cultist kind of environment i'm really wary about falling into another one and so i i, I voted for trump but i wouldn't say i was like on the bus right. <laughs> and so i do know some people that just made that it seemed like a dramatic switch from super left until and then like super trump train but you're saying you know people who went like way further into I've, something awful yeah i've crossed paths with people as i've moved politically one way and i've crossed paths with people who are moving too and at one point we were the same and they've gone completely the opposite way uh, typically that's uh behavior i would associate with someone i would call a joiner because it's easy to change your views entirely when you didn't really stand for anything in the first place mm -hmm. um, i know people who started in black lives matter and ended up in white nationalism and along the way went through conservative ideas liberal libertarian ideas and just ended up settling a white nationalist because they end up in this sort of hole. Um, it's very easy to get stuck in that hole, by the way. I, I, it's particularly diff difficult to leave white nationalism because once you're in that hole, once you're recognized as, well, you're that far-right lunatic, there's no forgiveness, there's no redemption, there's no discussion, there's no willing to talk, uh, willingness to talk to you. You are condemned forever. The only way you can get out of it is if you jump to the exact upper side and become a far left radical, and then maybe, maybe you'll be accepted. But let me tell you, I've seen people do that. I've seen people leave the far right, go to the far left, presumably hoping that they're going to get an easier life. And it doesn't really happen because they still get told, well, what are you going to do for penance? How are you going to repay? And, you know, you're never really truly one of them because they've always got it over you, one over you that you were in the far right that one time. Yeah. And so, I mean, how much of that do you think is because the ideologies have a lot of similarities because I think of, I think of social justice or, or if you want to call it identitarian, identitarian Marxism, but this mm. identity based Marxism, I think of that as the other side of the same coin yeah. of alt-right white supremacy, because they both, they basically, the way I look at it is they present you with this false dichotomy where they say, the world is best viewed as a, a, a place of competition between, you know, these competing identity groups. Yeah. And it matters very much what race you are. And right. we need to judge and treat people differently on the basis of race. The only difference or one of the big differences is just how they rank the races. I mean, social justice is like, okay, 
the best way to look at the world is, uh, you know, as a competition for power among these identity groups. And we're putting black people up here and we've got white people way down here and, and white nationalism is the opposite. So part of it, I think, is those people haven't really abandoned that worldview. They've just gone to the other side to say, well, I'm going to go to the side that puts my race at the top. Mm. Yeah, no, I think there's definitely something to that. Um, I argue uh, in, in in favor of the horseshoe theory. You know, it, it doesn't really go left and right. It really sort of comes down and joins at the bottom. And I think it's true that there's a lot of similarities when it comes to identity. I personally don't think the idea of um, having an identity is a bad thing, but it can be. Um, for instance, one of the things that really motivated me and sort of pushed me from when I first joined the BNP and then as the years went by and I became more radical and I became surrounded by um, extremism to the point where I was sort of more forgiving of it and started engaging with it myself and I would use racial slurs and so on. Um, I'm kind of losing my point here. Um, what were we talking about? <laughs> we're talking about the horseshoe theory and what is that like? Is there, is there is there something to the idea that maybe these people haven't abandoned their worldview at all? They've just chosen the other side of the coin, but the same worldview. Right. So I, and I jumped off from there and I was talking about the idea of identity. So yes. I was saying when I started becoming engulfed by this stuff and I would start using the racial slurs and becoming a part of these groups where we would make these crass jokes and, and so on. Um, one thing that really angered me and sort of motivated me to begin viewing the world through a really racial lens was the fact that I would so often hear that there was no such thing as uh, like an indigenous European person and so on. Cause the, that was the big debate in Europe at the time with, with mass immigration was immigration's changing communities. And part of that is race. And so what they would say is, well, there's no such thing as an indigenous European person because we're all immigrants and so on. And there's an obvious, like, regardless of whether you believe in mass immigration or not, there's an obvious untruth to that because every race comes from somewhere. Um, and it just so happens that the European people are for the most part white and historically are, are white. And so when I would get told, well, actually you're not European, you're not British, you have no identity, white boy, that was really hard to, to cope with. And that's what creates this problem with identity-based politics is it's not so much that the identity is bad. There's nothing wrong with knowing your history and being proud of it and wanting your country to be representative of the values that you know shaped that country. But when you start getting told that you don't exist, that's a surefire way to make people really mad. And, you know, I know I know kids who un ended up in prison. I, I, you know, there's a photograph that gets shared relentlessly on Twitter of me shaking hands with a guy called Jack Renshaw. And they say, Jack Buckby, that's your terrorist pedophile friend. Well, it's like, actually, that's a 16-year-old boy that was from my hometown who I knew, who later became a terrorist. Yeah. So do you, how do you define your identity now? Because... I don't really view when I was in social justice, everything is about what groups you're in, your identity groups. And that's, that's how a lot of people in that ideology, once they get sucked into it, they start to see themselves as just this list of identity groups. And it's like, who are you? Oh, I am a white cisgendered heterosexual woman who, and, and it's all based on identity and that's it. Yeah. Or, or they'll even add now, now the social justice is sort of, branching out and adding all these different categories of identity. So you'll even see people claiming 
all of their mental health issues as part of their identity, you know, and I have depression and I have this. And, right, um, right. and so I've been out of it long enough now where I don't, none of that is my identity anymore. I don't have, I mean, obviously I believe uh, being a woman, you know, being white, those things have an impact on your life and your experiences, but there are so many other facets to my life that have a, a bigger impact. And, and people never on the social justice side, they're not encouraged to look at those at all. It's like yeah. your identity is strictly your race, your sex, your sexuality, your mental health status, whether or not you're fat. And, right. and they just reduce, they just like remove the humanity from you. Um, anyway, that's a long build up to how do you identify now? I'm, there's not a right or wrong answer. I'm just curious. I think maybe you'll agree with me on this, but I don't actually think about it that much. I know. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the difference. You know, I'm an Englishman in New York. I'm, I'm white. Uh, I don't think, you know, the even the political thing, you know, I, I always tell people I'm a conservative for the most part. I don't know what I am. If you, watch back, if you watch back interviews I've done on the, because see, for instance, I, I started in white nationalism at 15 and then gradually moved and eventually became involved in counter jihad politics because England has a, a quite a substantial problem with uh, jihadis and Islamic radicalism um, brewing uh, domestically. Um, and so I moved on from the white nationalist stuff and got very heavily involved in the counter jihad politics. Um, and then I became really super, like identified strongly with that that message too. Um, but as time went by, and I've sort of mellowed out, and be, you know, I'm 29 years old now. I started at 15. I had a lot of emotional maturing to do, and it just so happens that the years I spent maturing were the years I was publicly involved in politics, which makes life difficult. Mm. Um, I've gradually sort of dropped these identities and I don't know what, what I am politically. I agree with some things conservatives say. I agree with things that liberals say too. I don't think about it that much. And it is genuinely freeing um, yes. to sort of escape the hive mind. It, I completely agree with that. It resonates with me a lot because even now people will tell me, oh, well, you're more of a libertarian or you know, of course, people in the social justice left will call call me far right or call me <laughs> right wing, which is crazy. Um, but depending on, I think, I think a lot of how people define one another now just depends on, in part, where they're standing, mm -hmm. that perspective thing, that standpoint thing. Yeah. Um, and you know, if I have to tell, if I have to put a label on myself politically, it's usually like, well, I know I've become more conservative personally on a lot of personal issues, meaning like the best way in which I think I, I should live my life, but on a lot of policies, I'm still liberal. So, you know, yeah. I'm not really sure. And I, and I, I agree with you that it's freeing because it's, it's like so much of my identity used to be wrapped up in not just those, those um, identity group categories that I talked about, but in the political identity. Right. And I think that partisanship and this tribalism and, and it, I think it depends on us making our identity, whether or not we're, at least in America, whether or not we're blue or red, you know, yeah. which are you? And, you know, I wonder whether there's a difference here, but leaving the, the, the extreme right is, is tough because there's no redemption. You know, this is mm -hmm. one thing I'm, I, I, I care deeply about is the idea that young lads, and the reason I say young lads is because it is mostly young men, young white men. Um, there needs to be 
redemption for these kids because otherwise they're stuck in the hole forever. You know, I've seen people who've tried to escape and they, they try and talk the way that I do, where they say, listen, I, I, I'm a conservative. I, I, th this was a mistake. It's not what I believe. I went down a rabbit hole. I'm a conservative. And they get laughed at. They get targeted relentlessly by these far left extremists who say, no, you're a Nazi. You're still a Nazi. You're still a Nazi. And guess what happens? They go back to their old circles because that's the community. That's the only place that they're welcomed. If we genuinely want to stop this, if we want to give kids hope, if we want to get people out of extremist circles, then we have to be willing to talk to them. And also we have to be willing to look at the factors that drive them there. You know, I think there's, I think we're seeing something really interesting now because I think a lot of the reason why people join the far right is because of the behavior, at least in part of the far left. I think it's a three-pronged attack actually. I think it starts with the politicians ignoring you, like we talked about before. And then it starts, it's compounded by the media smearing you. You know, the politicians ignore you, so you try and speak out about it. You look to the media and see, are they representing me? And they're not. They'll just call you a racist too, like they did with me when I was a teenager. I had newspapers, national newspapers in the UK calling me a racist and this, that, the other. And I always look back and think, if only those conservative journalists who wrote those things about me had reached out to me and spoke to me instead of just smearing me, my life might have turned out differently. And then finally, it's compounded by far left extremists attacking you. You know, you have this, this combination of factors that drives people in different directions. And I think we're seeing liberals become conservatives and natural conservatives, people who should just be on the right, becoming white nationalists. I think it's kind of pushing people in, in one direction. I see this happening too. I, yeah. And it's something I've been afraid of for a while because, you know, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction, that whole idea. And one of the things that woke me up in my case was after Trump was elected, I was like during the campaign and then after the he was elected, that was a whole period for me of reevaluating things because of the vitriol on my side uh, in the social justice left, because of people suddenly supporting violence and, and making justifications, pseudo intellectual justifications for violence against Trump supporters. Right. Um, those things started to impact me. And I, and, and also I started to notice <clears throat> what you're talking about after Trump won, I was trying to figure out why he won because I, I was still very much, but I still thought I was one of those people who cried the night he won in 2016. Wow. I thought he was a demagogue, you know, I was trying, I was, we have to figure out why I won so this doesn't happen again. And nobody in my social justice cult wanted to talk about that. No. The answers were just, oh, racism and sexism. Let's demonize the people who vote for him. That, those are the only reasons why he won. But as I started listening to more voices and conservative voices and trying to understand it on my own, I was realizing, oh my gosh, there's all these issues like you're talking about that no one's addressing. And they liked him because he was a guy who was talking about it. And, and my fear has been that if we continue to exclude moderates like him, and I do think of him as a moderate, if we continue to exclude them from social media platforms, from the social, you know, the public square, that all that's left is this underground, dark web extremist place to find people who are addressing these issues. Some of the most high profile people in these quote unquote conservative sort of libertarian movement as well, who have been deplatformed off Twitter are people that I personally am not a fan of people. I've, some of whom I've known in the past, but some of most of whom I not really a particularly a fan of these days. Um, you may have noticed that they went to a particular white nationalist meeting recently 
um, that's caused a bit of chaos for Marjorie Taylor Greene and some other oh, people yeah. spoke of it. You'll notice that people who spoke at that have been removed off Twitter. Now, ask yourself, would they would they be mingling with some of the worst of the worst in white nationalist, white supremacist politics um, had that not happened? I'm not entirely sure. I think what, what happens is when you deplatform these people, when you make their life a, a living hell and you give people absolutely no hope, um, the only people they've got left, like, um, you yeah, you, you push them, you push them. And some people say, oh, well, that, you, you're just saying, stop hitting me, st like, stop making me hit myself, you know? Uh, it, it's If you want to put it that way, fine, but that's really not a, a, a fair analysis of the situation. As you were saying, you know, every um, action has a reaction, and that's what you're going to get. It's, it's so much better to be able to talk about ideas, debate them. And I know this is something that's been said a million times. And I'm not saying anything new, but it's so important to be able to talk about ideas openly and, and, and not segregate people because you start creating really extreme factions uh, and groups who actually are kind of broad in their thinking, but equally extreme, right? They'll, they'll huddle together. Yeah. I, don't worry about that having been said before, because I'm I'm very aware there are people who watch me on the social justice left, and I always some of these things they haven't heard, even young people. Right. And right. the the idea that um, banning speech you don't like is actually counterproductive is yeah. I think something that needs to be said because all those voices that you don't like, not only are you pushing them more towards the extremism that you claim to not want people to be in but you're forcing them into the dark web in places where you can't even see what they're saying, where you don't right. know what's growing. And I, I, I completely agree. I think sunlight is the best disinfectant as people say. And I would prefer for all those people, even, even the ones, the ones who are called extremists when they're not, and the ones who are actually extremists, I'd still like to see what they're all doing. Right. <laughs> you I mean, it's interesting you say that because the, the, um, the policy adopted by Prevent, which is Britain's counter-extremism sort of program for young people, um, I, I've not seen a real focus on... Okay, so what I see from these people who are connected to Prevent or in that sort of world is that they're always talking about how can we get this group off the internet? How can we stop Telegram from hosting far-right channels? Well, how about we s let them stay online and we see what they're talking about and the government prevent strategies start thinking about, well, what are the issues that drive them and feeding that information back to politicians and ensuring that the politicians accurately, um, not accurately, but, but can sort of honestly address some of those issues or even just talk about them for God's sake. Just talk about them because talking relentlessly about shutting down platforms just makes it harder to identify them. And then you end up with a worse problem because once these movements um, sort of enter really, really dark circles and the dark web and so on, you can't monitor them. You can't track them. And that's a problem in sense of uh, security because some of them do become these sort of lone actor um, terrorists. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also a problem because you actually don't know what's driving them in the first yeah. place. Can we back up a second about your personal story? So you you got involved with the extreme right when you were 15. Mm -hmm. And how long were you in it? And 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 what was the the impetus for you starting to question your beliefs? So I joined well, I didn't officially join the party, but I became active in the party around 2008 and I was sort of like um 
online activism because I was a kid. I was 15. There wasn't really much I could do, certainly not enough that my parents were going to allow me to go to these meetings. And then I think I left the British National Party, I think 2012, something like that. So it was a good four years or so. Um, I went through college. Now, college is before university in England. It's age 16 to 18. You have both? Yeah, we, we go high school, college, university. That's like in, in the South here, we have uh, supper and dinner. <laughs> oh. like, <laughs> I didn't know you had both. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So I, I remember, um, I'd say funny story, but it's really rather tragic. Um, as I'm leaving high school, age 16, 15, 16, we're leaving out the front gates after, and saying goodbye to all our teachers. And my PE teacher asked me, what are you going to do, Jack? No word of a lie. I'm not making this up. I turned to my teacher and I said, I'm joining the far right. And she looked at me like that. And I said, not the bad far right, the good far right. Oh, and wow. I, and I, I look back at that and think about it. It's like, wow, even that was my earliest sort of um, involvement with politics. And even I knew back then that there was this bad element to it, but I wanted to bring the good out in it. But as the years went by, um, some of the people I was associating with, um, were really quite extreme you know it wasn't just talking about immigration it was how can we get as many non-white people out of the country as possible how can we incentivize them to leave and so on you had this moderate face in public i got very close to the leader of this party you know i, I at the age of 18 people were talking about me being the next leader of the bmp which was a major national political party i was 18 years old so you're like a poster boy yeah, they, they used to call me the boy wonder of the far right. <laughs> um, and it, it, it was a surreal experience. And I look back as, as well at that and I think, well, if you were talking about making an 18-year-old the next leader of a major national political party, then there mustn't have been much bloody talent there because I was a kid. Like, I was a talented kid, but a kid. Um, and I really started to see things from the inside. You know, you had this... Uh, this uh, let me give you an example. One of the policies originally the BMP was no gay marriage or entirely no gay marriage at all, but also no civil partnerships. And so I was part of a wing of the party where we said, OK, well, let's not have gay marriage, but let's have civil partnerships and make sure they have equal rights and so on. Then also there was a moment where the party was forced legally to accept non-white members. And I was in the wing of the party that was happy to accept non-white members because I thought that was important. And so there was this bitter sort of fighting within the party. And as time went by, I, I saw how extreme some of them were and the comments that were made behind the scenes. And I started trying to, I really, really fought to try and modernize it a little bit after I went through a period of sort of quite extreme thoughts myself. And it became futile. And I think what really woke me up is when I was in Liverpool, which is a city where my half my family's from and it's right round the corner from where I grew up and where I went to university. Um, I was being threatened by old National Front Combat 18 neo-Nazi groups that were threatening to kill me because they were saying I was a Jewish, Jewish Zionist shill. I'm not Jewish. Um, and I barely spoke about Israel back then at all. And in fact, actually, I've always been quite pro-Israel. Um, they were calling me a Jewish Zionist shill and that I was a government state agent and so on. And they were threatening to kill me. And the police got in touch with me and the police met with me and said, listen, Jack, this is serious. And that was like a bit of a wake up call. You know, um, I, I think it was soon after that meeting with the police that I, I left the BMP. But it was a journey ever since then. 
And along the way, I met some young lads. You know, I know some men who've killed themselves um, because once that party sort of exploded or imploded and UKIP, Nigel Farage, replaced it as the sort of populist moderate party, um, these lads were left with nothing because they weren't accepted and there was no redemption for them. No one wanted to talk about why they were even in the BNP, so they killed themselves. Um, <laughs> others ended up in prison. Um, as I was saying before, Jack Renshaw is in prison, I think on a life sentence for trying to murder our member of parliament, Rosie Cooper, um, with a machete. Um, I know another lad, I think it might still be in prison, I don't know, because I believe he threw a Molotov cocktail through someone's window. Um, he was quite unstable too. He ended up joining the Communist Party years later. Strange. He went from far right to Communist Party. Far left, yeah. Um, so it was really just seeing this stuff up front. You know, I, I get a lot of shit. Excuse my language. I don't know if I can swear on this yeah. podcast. Um, I get a lot of crap because people say, well, I'm just trying to weasel my way out of it and so on. I'm really not. Um, my life's going to be difficult. I, I, I think this is going to follow me for the rest of my life. It still follows me now, like all these years later. Um, I'm just trying to do something positive about this. I think it's so important that we talk about it. And the fact that I have this experience, I've seen those awful things that drove me out of it, I think can be valuable to, for people to understand why people find themselves in these circles. And if I got out of it, other people can get out of it too. Absolutely. Look, well, well, that brings us back to your point earlier about how you said one of the differences in leaving the far left and the far right, far right might be the redemption that's offered or not. And um, I'll say as someone who's left the far left, there's definitely, I, I definitely see and I encounter people who are resentful or um, arrogant or who every once in a while who, I, even today I saw someone on Twitter who, a woman said, you know, she posted publicly that that she had bought into all of the masking mandates and she has since changed her mind. And she thinks that it's a gateway to mass vac uh, you know, mandates for vaccines and, and for uh, further restrictions of freedom. And so this is a person who's brave enough to publicly say I was wrong and I went through this trans this transformation in belief. And most of the comments I saw were positive, actually. But there were a couple in there that had that sort of resentment flavor. It's like, tough cookies, no forgiveness. Why don't you do contemplate on what you were, you were so wrong about this? It's too late. You know, that kind of attitude, right. which is completely useless because you're not giving anyone an incentive to come over to your point of view. Right. Why, why would they come to your point of view if they're just going to be shamed and mocked and there's right. no redemption offered. It's like it doesn't make any sense. You're you're actually pushing people to stay yep. in in their belief system that you think is wrong. And so you know, I, interesting. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say. Well, so I, I I definitely have seen it. I I definitely have seen people who have that attitude. And every once in a while, I'll I'll, I'll get that kind of a comment about me or about other people who've left the left, where it's like, too late. Are you doing penance for all the wrongs that you you know all the stuff you did in social justice? And it's like, um. Uh, what do you think? This is what I talk about now. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't have to do actually. I don't right. think I have to do penance, but it happens to be something I'm very interested in, right. and I'm very concerned about where the country's headed, where the whole culture's headed, and and I'm really concerned about young people who get sucked into it. And right. so, and so, um, anyway, all of this to say, even though I've experienced that, it's not the it's not the whole. And, and it's it's a very small minority. Most people 
in my experience, in, in the, the moderate left or the moderate right, like people conservatives, they're very accepting. They, there is that forgiveness, that redemption that's offered. For the most part, people are really happy to see that you've changed your opinion and that you've come over. And, and, and that's overwhelmingly the, the majority of the response I've gotten. For you, for people like you, left the far right, is there nothing like that? It's not even close. You know, I, I watch and I watch and I, I'm happy. I, I see you and I see other people like you who've left these the, the radical left and go on to do these great things. And it makes me really happy because I think that's super important that those voices are heard. Um, I often just disappear because I come back and I'm like, right, this time I'm going to really do it. People are going to hear what I'm saying. And it doesn't happen. And I decide, you know what, I'm done trying and I leave. You know, I'll leave Twitter for four months, five months and then come back and I'll give it another shot. No, it doesn't work. Um, so what do you mean? D describe what that means. Are you you're rejected by conservatives, conservatives and the yeah. left? Everyone. No. So the radical left will not stop sharing photos and they can share it all they like. Actually, it's in my book. If I had a copy of my book, I'd show it on the screen right now. There's photographs of me with men who became terrorists. People who uh, were the most uh, famous white nationalists or anti-Semites or Holocaust deniers in the country, whatever. Yes, there's photographs of them, me with them. You know why? Because I used to be in the far right. That's why. But people share them relentlessly and say, well, Jack Butby's a notorious white nationalist. Well, no. I, you, if you just add the word former, then you're being accurate. Right. Um, so these things get shared. Um, they, they do it to the post-millennial. The post-millennial once published an article by me. And what happens now is that they're campaigning to get the post-millennials advertising removed. And they're using me as a way to get it removed by telling the advertisers, hey, do you know that they post um, articles by this white supremacist? And it's like, well, nobody's looking at the content of the article that I posted on the post-millennial. And nobody's looking at the fact that, no, I'm not a white supremacist and nor am I far right. Um, and then you have the moderate liberals who actually, I think, are overwhelmingly, once they once they realize the journey I've been through and who I am now, they sort of open up and accept it. And I, I actually, I, I have to say, moderate liberals have been the most accepting in talking to me. And, uh, you know, that's why I'm so pleased to talk to you. And there's others I know who are just so kind to me. And I appreciate it greatly, you know, not just for for my own mental health, as I suppose, is a big part of it. I have to consider myself, too. You know, I'm going to be li I'm going to live another 60 years or something. I've got to do something with my life. I've got to be mentally OK. Um, but then conservatives, I have to say, are pretty brutal. You know, there's people who, um, there's conservatives who've been smearing me for over a decade now. There's conservatives who, even when I was in the BNP and so on, instead, from the UK, instead of at that time when, in those days where I was a young kid, where these conservatives could have reached out to me and talked to me, which is so much more effective than just bullying, especially bullying in you know, I was smeared in national newspapers as uh, all sorts of terrible things, which might have even been accurate at the time, but that's not the point. Um, or uh, written reports about me in think tanks and so on when I was 16, 17, 18. They would have had a much better impact on my life and others if they just contacted me and said, hey, listen, you're, you're, you're saying these radical things. Do you know that you could... Um, you could be a conservative and you could have you could approach this from a more moderate way and so on that would have worked better and some of these people who smeared me and attacked me all those years ago are still doing it now even That's after right. this process of leaving they still do it to this day and conservatives i have to say as someone who's largely a conservative are overwhelmingly um difficult <laughs> 
to talk to. Why do you think that is af after you've left? Why, why I actually understand it may not have been right to do to a 16 year old who's misguided. And, yeah. but I, I do understand at least that like you even said, some of these things may have been true. They were printing, yeah. but since you left right. and you speak against white nationalism, why do you think there people on uh, the conservatives would continue to smear you? Because if they don't, if they don't um, get on board with the smear or if they, uh, don't if they don't, if they reject the smear, they become a target themselves. Mm. You're friends with that neo-Nazi, right? You know I, th th that's very powerful, and so I think people just want me to get out of the way and just disappear, and die, or just disappear. You know, um, because it's so much easier for them. You know, I think there's ego is part of it too. Um, I don't make my money in politics. It's not it's not what I do for work. Um, but it's something I try to do. I write as much as I can. I publish my books and my papers and I'm, uh, I continue doing stuff on my website and so on. I, I do what I can. But there are people who do this as an industry. Um, there are people who do this as a career choice. And it, it makes it difficult for them to be um, willing and open to talk to people like me because it makes their life difficult. You know, suddenly they might lose their advertisers. They might lose their sponsors if they talk to me because I'm just that white nationalist. Right. Mm -hmm. And OK, I know this sounds like a big woe is me, you know. I'm no, but it's also let me interject just for a second. It's also. You're making me think it's good for them because they if they're being called these things by by extreme leftists. Mm -hmm. And I get called these things. So I know the conservatives are. It must be, it's very convenient to point to, to, to someone else and say, no, it's that person. Right. Let me pile on that person. See, I'm piling on too. Right. And you know, you can expand from that too. That's absolutely true. And the, the, they're willing to pile on to save their own skin, I think, which is a shame. I think conservatives need to be more willing to talk about this. And also, I think actually that there's a problem within conservatism where people think because the term far right is so often misused, to refer just to conservatives, they think the far right doesn't exist and they will argue that it doesn't exist. You know, I, I when I wrote my last book, um, it was aimed at conservatives. I, I wanted liberals to read it to, to, too, but there's sections in it where I'm basically pleading with conservatives, accept this problem. Um, and they always say to me, Jack, why are you writing a book about the far right? They always called you far right. So why would you use it too? Well, I'm using it in a more intellectually honest way. I'm talking about people who want to uh, violently attack non-white people or remove them from the country, uh, who are virulently anti-Semitic and so on. And it's important that you accept that problem is real. And just because the water has been muddied by radical leftists who say everyone's far right doesn't mean we should ignore it, because that's effectively a win for the far left then, because they can look at conservatives and point to them and say, look, here they are saying white nationalism doesn't exist when this terror attack happened by a white nationalist and this terror attack happened by a white nationalist. These things do happen. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I don't want to play that blame game of pointing fingers and so on. I, I, I could very well, you know, take the attacks against me and say, oh, no, you shouldn't be calling me a white nationalist. Go and look at those people. You, if anyone actually follows my work, they'll see that I don't spend most of my time pointing out and finding underground radical white, uh, white nationalist groups and saying these are the real enemies and so on. I'm not interested in pointing fingers. I want to look at why these young kids end up in those places in the first place. It's way more powerful and way more important. Um, but yeah, back to your point, I, 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 it does. Make, it, I think it's deeply sad that conservatives have such a hard time 
doing this. You know, look at all the look at all the moderate leftists that talk to people who let, leave social justice warrior circles. The praise, the pats on the back. You know, it's super important that that happens, but it doesn't happen with conservatives and the far right, and it should. Part of that is, is probably because of how culturally accepted the far left is right currently. So, for example, uh, I've I've had someone point out before on on twitter or something they're like oh you follow xyz person or you've uh, retweeted this person before or someone i have no idea and they're an awful person and they said these things or here's a good example i was on a uh, gavin mcginnis's show a couple years ago and people want to throw you know categorize him as a white nationalist which he's not hmm. i did look into it before i went on right. but even if he were I st I'm still friends with and I still follow and retweet sometimes and interact with social justice warriors. Right. Social justice is just as morally reprehensible and just as racist as white nationalism, yeah. but we don't treat it like it is. That's no. one major difference. At least culturally, uh, the mainstream, we've accepted that white nationalism is wrong and off limits and we had correctly identified it as extremist and racist. But we don't do that yet with social justice. It's it's so mainstreamed. It's culturally dominant right now. It's it's in you know all the all the newspapers. It's in you know all the media. It's in entertainment. All the brands are speaking it. And yeah. so leaving it is not that big of a stigma because it, you're still operating in a in a broad culture that thinks it's okay to be that right. <laughs> when right. it's not. So I think that's probably a part of it too. Is that we've all accepted and agreed that yes white nationalism is wrong but we haven't all accepted and agreed that social justice is just as wrong right and oh, that's interesting yeah i but you know the other thing is if we agree that it's wrong but then we're unwilling to talk to the people who are involved with it what do you want those people to do like realistically because they're not going to go away um some of them are just genuine monsters who can't be saved i think mm -hmm. and that's really unfortunate i know some people like that I think a lot of them can because um, they never needed to be in that movement in the first place. You know, it's funny when I when I was in college, my politics teacher was um, a Muslim Pakistani guy called Saqib Murban. Oh, I shouldn't have said his full name. Saqib. Um, uh, I don't know why I shouldn't have said his full name. It's not like anyone's going to find him. It's very public knowledge. I went to Winstanley College in Wigan. So whatever, Saqib, you know, I, I, I always want to reach out to him and I, I, I can never find him. But I remember I used to get on with him really well. And this is even when I was in the BMP. And I remember they were going around the classroom and saying which political party that everyone supported in the politics class. And nobody ever knew what I was until eventually one day he asked. And I said, BMP. And he was just like, what? <laughs> you know their history? And I was like, yeah, I think I think it's irrelevant. And he kind of took me on his wing, under his wing a little bit. He was very patient with me. And I remember him saying to me, Jack, you're a Tory. A Tory is a conservative. Um, you're a Tory, Jack. I know you are. And all these years later, he's basically right. Um, I, 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 I consider myself a conservative now. I think I always was, but there were motivating factors that pushed me there. There are a lot of kids who are exactly the same way. Now, if there's no redemption for them, what do they do? As I was saying before, they'll, they'll kill themselves. I, I had a mental breakdown in this process as well that was really severe. Um, and that's pretty common because once you realize there's no future ahead of you, there's nothing. Um, 
it's it's tough and i i really really feel for these young men and that, that's an unpopular thing to say by the way i feel for white nationalists i do I genuinely do, because a lot of them have troubled upbringings. A lot of them feel socially outcast. A lot of them joined for legitimate reasons and so on. And I just wish there was this culture of openness among conservatives with kids in the far right. And, willing, you know, you don't have to. Um, I'm not saying endorse what they're saying. I'm saying listen to them. Talk Pull to them. Out. Yeah. Yeah. So. Do you think that there's a, a process for it? Well, first of all, I'll back up. You said that there are people who are in the far right who you think are just, they're far gone, they're monsters, they're, they had, they're not going to be saved. But there are some people worth saving. I would say the same thing about social justice. That may not be unpopular, but there are some people in it who are just monsters who yeah. are beyond redemption. Um, but there it's are not a matter of not wanting them to get out of it, by the way. It's that I think literally they can't. And they, they can't. Yeah, the same for social justice. But I also agree, another similarity is there's a lot of people in it who have troubled upbringings, have had um, issues in their childhood, who have certain psychological issues. There are people in it with good intent who get into it without realizing what it is. And I do think those people can be reached. And I know I've had, we've had, I've had people who watch my show who've left the social justice and I've met other people like myself who've left social justice. So um, in your example, in your story, how, given, given your experience, how would you reach those young men? And have you reached any? Is there a process for deprogramming people who are on the alt-right? See, that's, there's a lot. Okay, let me unpack that in a couple of ways. The, the, the first way is uh, just obviously being willing and open to talk to people. So since I published... Um, the book uh, that was kind of like half about my life and then half analysis. It wasn't so much an autobiography, but it did include my story. Um, I've had young people reach out to me having read it um, and they've changed things around and I've spoke to them and I've done what I could, you know, I'm not an expert in this. There's probably training I would need to actively do this properly, but for as long as people reach out to me and want to talk to me, and if anyone watching this wants to talk to me, just contact me. It's easy on my website and on Twitter and I'll, I'll talk to you. Um, I, I am pretty proud of the fact that I know people that were engaging in what is technically um, a, a terrorist organization in the UK, National Action. People from that organization have spoken to me and they've told me that they've left and the, the improvements they made in their lives. And I, I, I'm so happy to see people doing that. But there's only so much I can do. And I, realistically, I think there's very little that I can do unless, you know, I, I, I can reach a wider audience. And again, that's why I thank you for having me on. But I think it has to come down to, a, fundamentally, it's a political issue. Because the three-pronged attack that I talk about starts with the politicians. Things have kind of gotten better in the UK, I think. Because the first prong, as I say, was the politicians ignore you. And in the UK, we had Brexit finally after the referendum. Boris Johnson delivered that. Um, there has been some more talk on... Uh, sorting out the immigration system in the UK. There has been more talk about clamping down on Muslim grooming gangs and so on. Whether that goes beyond talk and into actual policy, I don't know. But I think things have improved in the UK. In the States, um, you have half of the politicians willing to engage with you and the other half willing to call you a neo-Nazi and ruin your life. That's worrying to me. Then you have the media, which again is it's not it's split, but not down the middle. It's probably like 80-20 smearing you, calling you a neo-Nazi and a racist, just like the politicians. So, I mean, the 
only way to really solve this problem is to stop people going down these wormholes, uh, these rabbit holes in the first place. And ultimately, that comes down to what the politicians and the media do. So solving this problem is no easy feat. Um, the, again, we, we can pull people out of it. I think that's possible. And I think there needs to be a better embrace of people that leave the far right, especially among conservatives. Um, because you know what? A far right kid is much more likely to find themselves at home in conservatism than they are in liberalism. Mm -hmm. you know, this is one thing I was going to say earlier, but I get sidetracked very easily. Um, the prevent system in the UK what they tend to do is they try and get these far right kids and tell them or put them with someone who considers themselves a, a far left liberal and they try and completely deprogram them, like take every idea and prove that they're wrong. But what that really does is it kind of cements them in those beliefs because yeah. if you're a far right neo-Nazi and you're meeting with say like a, a, a Jewish um, a radical leftist or something like that, which does happen by the way, you have like radical leftists who try and deprogram the far right and it doesn't work. So if you find someone, you're an anti-Semite and the person deprogramming you is a, a, a Jewish liberal, for instance, it's going to be really, really difficult because that's their enemy. They're talking to their enemy. I think it's so much easier when they're sat with someone um, who they can more associate with and frankly, this is probably why conservatives don't like me talking about this. When you're in the far right, I think it's more of a natural progression to sit and move towards conservatism than it is to radical uh, leftism. Because Black Lives Matter and so on is, while it shares similarities in the traits of identitarianism, it is fundamentally different. It's polar opposite. So I think we need to do more as conservatives to talk to these young men because that's where most of them naturally are mm -hmm. it's know. also it's also just more ideal for them to end up in conservatism or liberalism or somewhere in the middle than to end up in the far left i mean we that's not where it's a net loss i consider for someone to move from the far left to the far right or the far right to the far left right. that horseshoe theory you talked about like what's the difference great so you're just making the world a worse place but from right. over here now <laughs> like right. so um one of the things as you're mentioning the role of of politicians in the media one of the things they're getting incredibly wrong is they have to stop lying about what is far right they have to stop calling anything that's not social justice far right yeah you know they call people like me far right they'll call people like dave rubin far right and mother jones called him far right it's insane um when they when you make a false group like that and you say anything that's not on board with our very specific extremist ideology is far right yeah. well then you've got all these people who get used to just moderates and conservatives who get used to being called that Right. And and you're um, you're belittling what it is to such a degree that it doesn't seem that big of a jump to actually move over into the far. It's like, well, you're already calling me that. Exactly. And exactly. You know? And people say that's the whole you're making me hit myself thing. It's like, well, you may want to like reduce it down to something as simple as that. But it is true. It is something that happens. And the reason they do that is because fundamentally the people doing it are ideologically motivated. And James Lindsay would call them the race Marxists, you know, <laughs> but actually thinking about James Lindsay, there's something I've been wanting to write about recently about this Klaus uh, Schwab fellow from the World Economic Forum. And I think he symbolizes um, some of the similarities between the far left and the far right here, because I, I, I think you can say with relative certainty that Klaus Schwab is a 
far-left radical. And I noticed that some of the language he uses, I need to come up with a term for this. I think I, I think it's a good way of describing what he does is like honest hyperbole, because what he'll do is he'll use words like the Great Reset, knowing that that's going to piss people off because people say that and it's used as a conspiracy theory. And then he's the one using it and proving it's real. And he's doing it right in front of your face. Um, when he talks about the great narrative, you know, and he's wearing these stupid, weird space suits that he wears and everything about this Klaus Schwab guy is so in your face, so purposely provocative that it reminds me of what I used to do. Because when I was in the far right and then when I gradually left the far right to enter sort of counter jihad politics and so on, I would do something whereby I wouldn't tell a lie, but I would say something in such an aggressive way that it would sound like a lie or it would anger a lot of people. Like, for instance, not that long ago, like realistically, it was like, what, 2016, early 2016 or something like that. So that's what, six, seven years, six years ago. I went on live TV. This was towards the end of my journey, sort of leaving this, this, these politics. I went on live TV and there was a woman uh, next to me. She was pretty radically left wing. And I pulled out some paperwork that would allow her to adopt a Syrian refugee, a quote unquote Syrian refugee. A lot of them were pretending to be Syrian. They were from Eritrea and so on. And it was at the time when there was the migrant rape crisis in Germany. And so I handed her this paperwork live on air. And I said, here, take this paperwork, take in a Syrian refugee. I hope you don't get raped. And that's the kind of thing that I see Klaus Schwab doing. It's purposely provocative. And he doesn't think it's untrue, but he's doing it in a way that he knows is going to anger people. And I would do the same um, without trying to make excuses for myself. One of the reasons I would do that is because I thought, well, hell, I'm a bogeyman anyway. Everyone hates me anyway. Maybe I can say these things in an aggressive way that makes people think. But really what I did was just cause more anger. I caused more division. I didn't help the matters at all. I did the same thing when I ran for election in, uh, again, 2016. I ran for election um, in a seat that was vacated by an MP who was murdered by a white nationalist. And I ran for election because all of the politicians said they wouldn't run. And I said, well, that's not right. That's not how the democratic system works. When Airy Neve was killed by the Irish Republican Army um, in the UK, they, they ran to replace him. So why are we not doing this with Joe Cox, who was killed? And so I ran and I would air campaign ads where Joe Cox, the MP who was killed, I would slam her behind, uh, behind prison bars in these films because she'd ignored uh, uh, majority Muslim grooming gangs in her constituency. And again, I wasn't lying. She did ignore those things. And residents in that constituency told me that there was a big problem that she didn't talk about. But she'd also just been killed by a white nationalist. Yeah. And I was being purposely provocative. Um, I think that's something I should probably write about soon, because I noticed that's something the far left does and something the far right does. They'll say oh. something really impassioned, but in such an angry and vile way. And it doesn't help. <laughs> it makes things worse. No, it, it's purposefully triggering. It's not intended to bring anyone to your point of view. It's it's right. actually intended to piss them off, confirm all of their worst ideas about you. Yeah. And to, you know, they, they double down because yeah. now you're validating everything they think. I, I definitely see that on the left. It's like um, Kathy Griffin holding up the severed head of Donald Trump. That's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and she knows the response that that's going to get. It's not going to make a Trump voter go, huh, let me consider the left's point of view. Right. 
Right. No. Yeah. So, you know, that, that's that that's been an interesting journey for me, and I, I must say, and again, I, I I don't like to make it too about me because I I worry that it sounds like a whole woe is me sort of uh, you know how sad what happened to me, but I think it's interesting, you know. Um, By the way, it doesn't sound that way to me. It just sounds like you're talking about what happened, and right. you're a great case study for for leaving the the alt right the extreme right that's why it's so interesting and if people really wanted to put a stop to to white nationalism people that say they want to put a stop to white nationalism they should be talking to you yeah they should be putting you on mainstream media to talk to people about how to leave they should let you be a voice to those people to try right. to pull them out of it or all or to be a, a warning sign for right. people who might be entertaining you know being seduced by the alt right but instead you're just kicked to the sidelines and they're in, they're doing stuff like putting Kathy Griffin with a severed head. I mean, it's like, that's not going to yeah. win anybody out of the alt-right. That's crazy. Right. <laughs> well, my, my, my wife said something to me recently and I was like, you know, you're right. She says pedophiles get treated better than people like you. And it's like, you're right. You know, there's all these articles on Salon of the, the, the non-offending pedophiles and, and so on. And the, the worst of the worst are, are, are just given given these opportunities and, and defended in these ways. And yet there's absolutely no redemption for me, for anyone like me. You know, I know a guy called Jeff Scoop, who's really fascinating. He was the leader of the National Socialist Movement in the US. And he left only a few years ago, like 2017, he, he left the movement. He He's no longer a neo-Nazi. And he's been doing his damn best since. And he's probably better at it than I am because, uh, you know, he, he's very sort of uh, compassionate and understanding. And he, he's just so good at it. And the attacks I've seen against him are just so vile. Like It's the same as what they do to me. He's still a Nazi. He's still a Nazi. Do you know who it is that calls him that? It's the other people that left the far right. It's the other people who left the far right and became far left radicals. Because there's this whole industry. You leave the far right. You join the far left. You call yourself the former far righter. Some of them get away with it. Some of them struggle. But some of them have gotten big. I'm not going to name names because I know they're going to go after me if they hear this because um, they go after Jeff. Um, <clears throat> they know who they are. There's this huge industry that you can make yourself the former Nazi, right? And you'll be all over the news, the former Nazi. Uh, but you're accepted because you're a radical leftist. The moment that someone leaves and doesn't become a radical leftist, they're not just targeted by the radical leftists, they're targeted by the people who also left the far right. They get called, you're still a Nazi, and so on. And uh, yeah, we've, got, we've gotten to a point where there really is no way to leave. There's no way to leave unless you're willing to completely sell out and join something that's just as radical, just on the opposite side. Yeah. Well, you don't fit the narrative. I mean, the media is run by the far left. So unless you're jumping on that train and saying, rah, rah, BLM, right. social justice, right. woohoo, you know, trans kids, all of it, like, then <laughs> no, no, you're not wanted. No, because and, you know, I try to understand too, you know, I, I, I've written about Black Lives Matter and it's very easy to just, I, I think in my... I say my old age, I'm only 29, but I think in my old age, I've gotten a bit like softer than I used to be. And I look at BLM and I don't just see a violent extremist terrorist movement, which of course the behavior suggests that it is. I look at it and see a lot of pain because as I was saying before, people are driven to these things through, um, often through grievance. And that might be legitimate grievance. It might be perceived grievance, but it's still grievance. And I think what we see these people out on the streets 
a lot of them, especially the ones who aren't political, what happens is if this can be any political movement, let's just say black people. If you're not political, you entrust um, a lot on people who claim to be representative of your community. You entrust them with coming to certain conclusions and political advocacy and so on. And you're willing to listen to these big names who say that they're advocates for black mm -hmm. Americans. And so if you're not political, you'll believe what they say because they say they've got the, your best interests at heart. So when they tell you that the police are going to murder you, when they tell you that the police are systemically racist and so on, you believe them. And so you will be motivated to go out onto the street. And I don't for a moment think that those hundreds of thousands or however many people went out on the streets with Black Lives Matter are all monsters. I don't think they're all radical extremists. I think that they have a, maybe some legitimate grievances. Actually, I, I, I'll give them that. I think there are legitimate grievances. Police brutality does exist. I've got black friends who tell me that, you know, they do get, you know, they do get stopped more and, and so on. And there is some bias. And I accept that that's almost certainly the case. But there's a lot of grievances that are uh, hyped up and they've been egged on uh, and sort of, you know what I'm saying? These these grievances that have been sort of manufactured mm -hmm. by people like Reverend Al Sharpton and so on. Um, so I, I look at Black Lives Matter and I don't see violence and extremism. I see pain and uh, it, it, it reflects exactly what I saw in the white working class towns that I grew up in when I was out on the street campaigning for justice for a young girl who was raped and killed by a Muslim gang. I, that was pain. And that's the reason why we were out in the street with those white nationalist groups. It's exactly the same with Black Lives Matter. What would your message be if there were someone who's watching this, who's on the far right, who's explicitly, uh, you know, extremist and, and white nationalist or anti-Semitic, like what is your message to that young person? That some of your grievances are real, a lot of them aren't, and you can approach some of those issues from a more moderate standpoint. It doesn't have to be violence. It doesn't have to be um, advocacy for removing people or demonizing people based on race and so on. You know, it's true white boys, white straight boys have a rough old time these days. That's absolutely true, but it doesn't have to be countered with uh, extremism targeting the people who think for the most part are targeting you. Not everyone's against you. Um, that's one of the reasons why I say conservatives need to do more about this, because if conservatives can be open and willing with these young lads and say, listen, you've got a home here, you've got a community here, let's talk about it. Um, maybe they can leave. And it's hard to leave, by the way, because you're going to get bullied relentlessly by the people you're involved with now. So if I, say a far-right kid is watching now and they're thinking about leaving or thinking about talking to somebody like me, I'm sure that they know in the back of the head that the moment they do, they're going to get called a turncoat oh. and a traitor. And that's what happened with me. You know, I get people calling me and always knew he was a traitor and will become a multiculturalist or whatever. It's like, well, hello, I'm not pretending to be a leftist or, or a liberal here, but they'll say it anyway. The bullying is tough, but what can I say? You you have two options. You stick around and you go deeper into that that rabbit hole. Your life gets worse. And the what, what are you going to end up doing? You're going to have no job. You're going to have no friends and family. And you're going to realize at the end of it that it all wasn't worth it and was wrong. Or you can kind of pull your socks up now, accept the bullying you might get, maybe just log off the internet, you know? You accept the bullying and leave now. That's really the two options that young white kids involved in this stuff have. Is there any element of 
in your experience, is there any element of um, a lack of meaning or purpose or maybe religion that is driving people joining the alt-right? Because uh, from my experience on the left, that's definitely a big part of it as well. Um, and so I guess I'm wondering, do you, let me ask you another, I'll ask you two questions at once. So um, do you think that it's necessary for people to have a belief system and something to worship in, in order to get out of something like this, or is that not a part of it? I think it can be. Um, I grew up church of England, um, Protestant, uh, was atheist for many, many years. I'm kind of finding my faith again a little bit now, which I, th I think is good. I think it can help. Um, but I don't think it's necessary. Um, it might be a hard sell for some people. Although then again, for some people in the far right, they're probably already religious. Um, or already consider themselves Christian. Some of them really do, you know, despite advocating some pretty non-Christian ideas. I think it can play an important role in it, for sure. Um, and yeah, I think this idea of having no sense of meaning in one's own life can be a big part of it too. And I think that's the more the driving factor in someone who I would call a joiner. You know, the kid I was talking about who uh, threw a Molotov cocktail through someone's window who I knew, he was autistic, Oh, actually, that's another part of it. I think there's a lot of people uh, autistic getting involved with this too. Yes. And I've had that confirmed with um, people who work in counterterrorism in the UK have told me exactly the same thing. Autistic people are being uh, quite highly represented within the far right. Um, kind of Jack, like the way autistic girls are becoming trans, you know? Yes, I was going to say the gender ideology part of social justice, they're definitely preying on autistic kids. Yeah, uh, so that's scary. Um, but this kid that I knew, he he was autistic. Nice guy. I don't think he had the great greatest family life. He really didn't have any money. He had nothing going for him and so on. And so I met him when he was kind of leaving the conservative party to become a nationalist. And then he became kind of BMP when I was at BMP. Then he went National Front, which was like even worse than the BMP. Uh, then he ended up like Combat 18, which was like explicitly neo-Nazi. And then he, I remember he used to have like, I think he used to have Combat 18 sort of um, logos and everything on his profile. And then at that point, that was when I was kind of leaving the BMP. And I thought, okay, I've got to distance myself from this guy. There's, I can't really do much about it. And years later, I'm at a friend's house in my hometown. And someone says, um, oh, Sam is bringing his boyfriend later. And I was like, okay, cool. Let's see, you know, we'll meet him later. And the boyfriend turns up and it's this guy that I knew, the, the far right guy from years ago. And I'm looking like, whoa. Like, Wait, is Sam a guy? Sorry? Is Sam a guy? Yeah. Sam is bringing his yeah, boyfriend. Okay. Yeah. So he's gay. Yeah. <laughs> and he's gay and a communist. <laughs> Crazy. And it was after the communism thing, by the way, that he did the Molotov cocktail. Um, so it wasn't a far right attack. It was a communist attack. But I knew him when he was far right. Um, I think he lacked meaning in his life, too. Whenever I would meet him, he was never like he was really particularly doing anything. He didn't have much direction in his life. Same with the kid who ended up um, in prison on terrorism charges for trying to murder our local MP. He came from a broken home. Um, I'm, his mother, uh, his father, I didn't know them. I'm, I'm sure they could be perfectly lovely people, but he came from this broken home, felt like he had no direction. He was bullied relentlessly at college for being, you know, talking about immigration and so on. Um, and ended up doing the absolute worst possible thing you can imagine, which was, thank God he didn't, he was caught before he did it, you know? Yeah. I, I'm still thinking about, 
your friend who then became a gay communist. You're making me think of maybe there's an element to him and maybe there's an element to the people they, that want to deny who they are, what they are. That well, he was gay when I knew him. Oh, okay. So he, was a, he was a gay Nancy. You know, he used to... What? <laughs> yeah, he used to tell me about... I remember him telling me that he'd read the Pink Swastika. I've not looked at this in years. I'm, I'm, I'm talking like 10 years ago, and this is the first time I'm remembering he said this to me. We were at a bar in Liverpool, and he was telling me, I think there's a book called The Pink Swastika. I think it like talks about... Um, I could be very wrong here. I'm sure someone will correct me, but I think it talks about that there were gay people in the Nazi party and so on. Um, he didn't really see any conflict with it. He was fine with it. That's, I'm sorry I'm laughing. It's just, that's so interesting to me. That's yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. I'd seen some, and met some wild things, you know. Um, I hey, Let me tell you another story, actually. I don't know how okay. much time we have left, but there's all we these things that come to my brain and I, 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 I forget about it. The first meeting I went to for the British National Party I think I was probably 16 and a guy from my college came with me who was not politically on side with me, but we were friends. And like I, when I was in college and so on, I got on with people. Um, I had a fairly large friend group, but they always were like, what the hell is with Jack and this BMP thing? Like nobody really got it. Like people forgive me for it, but they didn't really get it. And they always used to call me. Yeah, Jack, he's the BMP guy, right? Like everyone just thought it was strange. So this guy I knew, um, I won't drag his name into it. <laughs> he probably I've not spoke, seen him in years, but he came with me just to see what the hell I was on about. And we got to this meeting and it's in a pub and we go in and there's like a rickety old TV with the uh, video cassette thing under it in one corner and everyone's packed in one side of the room. And I get my pint and we sit down and we talk to people and then suddenly the TV turns on and it's a film about how great, Colonel Gaddafi is because he gave money to his citizens from the oil and he was a socialist and he was so fantastic and he was race aware and blah, blah, blah. And I'm sat there and I'm thinking, I joined this white nationalist pro-English party, blah, blah, blah. And here I am sitting and learning about how fantastic Colonel Gaddafi is. I, it was one of the strangest experiences. And the guy that was showing that film, I think that was the guy that ended up threatening to kill me when I was in Liverpool just a few years later, because they always thought that I was like a spy for the British government. Well, I was asked to do that, by the way. I never did do it. Wow. Wait, so why were they showing that film? Because <laughs> Well, I think their argument was that Gaddafi was a socialist and did a really good job looking after his people because he would like pay for half a house when you get married and you'd get a free car or something and everything was everything was free but that was because they had tons of oil and all this stuff and in england I, I don't know exactly how they think that everyone can get a free house and everyone can get free land and so on they, they had this sort of utopian idea of a white ethno state where everything was free and we lived on the farms and so on which is just obviously never going to happen that's the part of the alt-right the the white nationalist white right sorry or the nazi party that i think a lot of people on the left don't realize i didn't realize that until the past few years that the, the nazis were socialists they were nationalist socialists right. i never even knew enough of my history to realize that they believed in socializing you know certain services or right. medicine like you're saying they have this utopia yeah. um being someone on the left who i went to a great school i would i went to the the best high school in my state and I went to a great college but I didn't learn enough about world history at all 
Right. And so I just didn't have that understanding and sort of culturally what you would pick up on the left is that socialism is good. And that's what we are. We're more closer to that area. Right. Like, and that the alt-right was just fascist and the, and there was never any discussion of the socialist part of that belief system. And yeah. that kind of blew my mind to learn all of that. I think it's an important point, but I think at the same time, you also have to be careful too, because Republicans, I wish I could name the exact attack this was, but I can't, I can't remember. Um, I remember there was a, a white nationalist uh, attack at a synagogue, I think it was, and conservatives' response to it was, oh, well, the attacker supported socialized healthcare, so he must have been a leftist. And I'm thinking he wasn't shooting up a synagogue because of healthcare, he was shooting up a synagogue because of his extreme right views. Right. You know, the, the, you've got the, the right-wing element and the left-wing element too. And it's very important that conservatives don't get stuck in this trap of going, the Nazis were the national socialists, you know. If you believe in nationalized healthcare, you must be a Nazi and all that kind of crap. I'm from England. We have national health service saved my life twice, thank God. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not an evil thing. Um, and so it's it's important to remember that. Yes, that of course, there's the socialist element to it. And the white nationalists that I, I knew growing up were really heading towards the more communist utopia side of things, the uh, you free everything, which never works, of course. Um, but at the same time, a little bit of, uh, you know, a social welfare system and so on is not a bad thing and not necessarily Nazi, you know? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I think it's just a, there's been this attachment of, in my mind, growing up in the United States and then get it becoming a big part of the left. There's just this attachment of socialism is definitely left and fascism is definitely right. And in the past few years, I've started to say that's not necessarily true. And right. even recently with, you know, governments in the West enacting authoritarian policies and, you know, in Canada, seeing the government get in bed with banks and corporations to deny people's freedoms or to put pressure on them. It's like, that's kind of like fascism. It's like government and economic involvement. And it may be happening on the left, but it's still, it, it sort of helped me to divorce those things and realize they're not necessarily right or left which right maybe maybe i'm wrong there but that's the well, way I, think, I think you're right and also there's something that worries me too is i look back in england and the conservative party which has made so many strides to start recognizing the kind of issues that attracted me to the bmp when i was a kid they've really done some good things um by addressing those issues at the same time the decision to lockdown so relentlessly it was extreme lockdown in the uk at first i was kind of on board with it i think a lot of people were because i had sick people in my family and i had no idea how bad this virus was going to be and so on i was on board with it but as time went by and it became evident that you know that perhaps the data wasn't adding up and maybe these lockdowns aren't working as well as they they're meant to be the conservative party just carried on and plowed ahead with this and they sure we've they've dropped all the restrictions now in the uk but it took two years. And what I'm seeing, I look up some of the people that I knew in my past who are still active. They're not as publicly high profile now, but they're still very much active and recruiting young people. COVID is a big talking point for them, which is really interesting that authoritarians are complaining about authoritarian crackdowns, but they are. And so here's the thing. If we are not allowed to talk about COVID lockdowns, if we're not allowed to talk about maybe this policy wasn't effective or so on, and if not enough voices are heard talking about this, then those underground movements that are talking about it are going to see some new recruits. That worries mm -hmm. me. That, yeah, that's very concerning. Um, 
Well, Jack, I don't want to keep you too long, but I've really enjoyed this and I'd like to talk to you again. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, Thank you so much for having me on. I'd absolutely love to come back. Can you just tell people, we're going to put it in the description of the video, but just tell people where they can find you online or find, find your books if they want to get in touch with you. Where can they do that? Sure. So it's twitter.com slash jackbuckby, B-U-C-K-B-Y, uh, jackbuckby.co.uk. It will be jackbuckby.com soon. I finally managed to get that .com. For years it was unavailable and it was snagged it the other week. So I'll have a jackbuckby.com website soon. Um, my books are all on Amazon and uh, and, and so on. Um, there's a, a paper I wrote about extremism in the COVID economy. And then my last book, Monster of the Road Making, is uh, quite a lot of detail of my own experiences which I think is a good book. So I hope people like it. Cool. Thank you. So I just have to end with a laugh. As you said, you just got the website, jackbuckby.com. I was thinking, who's the other Jack Buckby? And is he angry that a white nationalist, a former white nationalist has his name? I feel for him because there is another Jack Buckby. And every time I see him on Twitter, like in this, like I, I just, I feel for him. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> You're sorry. That's why my husband, there's a, he's a musician. There's also a murderer with his name. And it's like, ah, oh, that's. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, thank you for being with us. You guys check out Jack's website, check out his books, and uh, appreciate you guys spending the evening with us. Take care.